This is Summer of My German Soldier, Chapter 5. And just to recap what had happened in Chapter 4, Patty Bergen, remember, has already met Anton, the German POW that she met in her parents' store. And in Chapter 4, she went to visit her friend, Edna Louise, because she just felt the need to tell somebody this news of meeting a POW, and Edna Louise did not have anything good to say about Patty um, making a potential friend with a German POW, and so we kind of get a glimpse of Patty not really having any friends that she can really confide in. And so that is how chapter four ended. And in chapter five, Patty is meeting her grandmother to go shopping. So I want you to pay attention to things developing in this chapter also with regard to Patty's conflict of not really having a lot of people in her life that she can depend on um, and maybe feeling a little bit like an outcast. So this is chapter five, page 56 of My Summer, My German Soldier. On Thursday morning, I boarded the 845 train to Memphis. At the Skyway, on top of the Hotel Peabody, Grandma and I were seated at a white cloth table next to the wall of clear glass. As I pointed out the buildings on the bluff, the barges on the Mississippi, Grandma seemed pleased. I told the maitre d' to make certain my granddaughter has the best possible view. During lunch, Grandma spoke of her fears for her two sisters and their families in Hitler-occupied Luxembourg. They hadn't written Grandma, not in months. Toby's husband, Aaron, is the finest doctor in the country. He treats the Grand Duchess Charlotte. She pressed her handkerchief to her nose. I know they're all right. I told her what I had read about mail sometimes being destroyed during wartime. They're probably worried about you, I said. Grandma fingered the diamond and platinum bar pen at her neck before looking up cheerfully to ask if I was ready for dessert. When I considered the price of my lunch, $1.45, I said I was all filled up. But Grandma said nonsense as she ordered tea for two and persuaded me to try a long chocolate pastry with a French name, and that by itself cost 30 cents. Later, we walked arm in arm down busy Main Street, in and out of stores, Goldsmiths, Levy's, Lowenstein's. Grandma bought me two pairs of shoes and two wool skirts with matching sweaters. Next time, she said, we're going to shop for dress-up clothes. When she took me to Union Station, I told her, it was the best time I'd had all summer, and that next Thursday she wouldn't have to spend even a cent on me. I just want to be with you, I told her. Oh, Patricia, darling. Next Thursday is no good, she said, letting her face show a regret that I mistrusted. Grandpa and I are leaving the following Friday for Hot Springs. She went on talking about how sorry she was and that when she returned in August, but I had stopped listening. Why should I care? She had her children. She doesn't want any more. 
Don't worry about it, grandmother, I said, more shocked by the chill in my voice than the actual word. It's really not all that important. I found an unoccupied double seat and stared out the filth-encrusted window until the train began to pull out from the station yard, and not until then did I cry. The next day I wondered why I had acted so silly, and I wrote Grandma, thanking her for all the nice clothes and for the beautiful day that we had together. But outside of that day, that one day, the summer was hot, dry, and endless. Edna Louise, Juanita Hankins, Mary Sue Joyner, and Donna Rhodes had hopped aboard a bus that had taken them away from this flat and fried bit of earth that was Jenkinsville to the Baptist training camp up in the Ozarks. During the day, they swim, hike, and learn how much Jesus loves them. At night, they sit around the campfire roasting marshmallows and singing about how much Jesus loves them. I asked my mother if I could go, if I promised to cross my heart not to sing those songs and only pretend to listen when they talked about him. After all, I pleaded, Jesus isn't contagious, but she said, no, it's only for Baptists. So after they went away, the little good in the summer just wasn't there anymore. Ruth was preoccupied with her work and thoughts of Robert. And even Sharon didn't really have time for me. She and Sue Ellen spent practically the whole day, every day, getting in and out of water-filled, galvanized tin tub, which was set beneath the china berry tree. There was nobody to talk to and nothing to do. The school library was closed. I had finished reading the books, bought with Grandma's $10, and my father made it very clear that he didn't want to catch me hanging around the store. A few times, I rode my bike out to the prison camp, There was always a chance of maybe seeing him, my friend Anton, Mr. Frederick Anton Riker. Only thing I ever saw, though, was cattle wire fencing strung high on Y-shaped poles, which squared off a huge open area. Back a distance towards the center of the treeless compound, there were ten or more long whitewashed barracks sitting on their own patches of grass. Not many people were about during the day, although sometimes I did see a prisoner or two walking, but it was never Anton. Outside of biking, the only other thing I liked doing was fixing up my hideout. Actually, the hideout isn't so much a hideout as it is a forgotten place. It is a perfectly ordinary over-the-garage Over the garage servants' quarters, one big room, a little kitchen and bathroom, located halfway between our house and the railroad tracks, but it has been closed up for the ten years that our family has lived in the six-room frame house out front. There are two important things that make the place secret enough to be called a hideout. A long time ago, my father pulled up the horizontal stairboards to keep hobos from finding a home. I like it that way because no grown-up would balance himself on the brace boards to climb up like I do. The second secret point is that the stairs leading up to the hideout are located inside the garage, so from our house it's impossible to be seen climbing up or down the stairs. From the hideout's back window I watched a slow freight rumble noisily down the tracks towards Little Rock. I opened Webster's to the F's. Time to get going on my ambition. It's not the only one I have, but it's the only one I work at. 
Someday, I'm going to know the meaning of every word in the English language. I let my finger run down the page of the dictionary until it stopped at the first word that wasn't completely familiar. Fragile. Lots of times, boxes of glassware and things come shipped to the store marked, Fragile, handle with care. But it must have more of a meaning than that. I copy the definition into my notebook. Easily broken or destroyed. Frail, delicate. My word of the day. A few minutes later, I climbed down the steps skeleton and went into the house where I found Ruth leaning over the tub, giving Sharon her bath, up to her belly button and bubbles. It was plain to see that Sharon was in one of her giggly moods. Do you know why the little moron? She interrupted herself with an attack of giggles. Again, she began, only to act as though she'd been breathing laughing gas. It was becoming tiresome. Ruth, you tell me the joke, I said. Sharon straightened up. No, let me. Do you know why the little moron took his loaf of bread to the street corner? Cause, cause the little moron wanted to get some jam. Hiccup-like laughter engulfed her and I joined in. Mostly because I had never before heard anybody louse up a moron joke. I hung around watching while Ruth got Sharon all dolled up in her Shirley Temple dress and Mary Jane shoes for Sue Ellen's sixth birthday party. One thing, and it's not because she's my sister, but Sharon happens to be very pretty. Everybody says that with her black hair and dark eyes. She looks just like mother while I look like. No, I don't think I look at all like him. Outside, the two o'clock sun right away showed us that he was far from fragile. We'll walk slow, said Ruth, so as not to anger him up. On the sidewalk in front of the birthday house, Ruth adjusted Sharon's pink hair ribbon. Now don't let me hear no bad reports come back on you. You hear me, girl? Sharon nodded, turning to go. Hold up now, called Ruth. Remember what it is you was going to say to Sue Ellen and her mother for taking your leave? I had a very good time at your party and, and, uh, she looked into Ruth's face for the answer. And I thank you kindly for inviting me, supplied Ruth. Sharon smiled, and I thank you kindly for inviting me, she repeated, and without even a goodbye, she skipped off into the birthday house. As Ruth and I walked back, slowly back, I tried to talk to her, but she wasn't in too much of a mood. Ruth, why are you mad at me? Mad at you? Oh, Patty, babe, I ain't mad at nobody about nothing. Sometimes when a person be thinking about one thing, it don't mean they is mad about another thing. It don't mean nothing but that they is too busy for normal conversation. Then it was Robert. Laughing, light-skinned Robert over there fighting in some faraway foxhole. God, could you please remember to keep Robert safe from harm? Please, God, because he's all Ruth has. Amen. Want to know who is the strongest man I ever knew in all my whole life? Robert is. I bet he could beat up six Germans and outshoot a dozen of them. Honest, he could. A slow smile spread across her lips, but her eyes, Ruth's eyes, had this gloss, and they weren't smiling. Oh, Robert's going to be okay, you'll see, and you know what? Robert's going to help win the war. Honey, I don't care about no war. I just cares about my boy. You have to. I felt embarrassed by the conviction rushing through my voice. You're supposed to care. Don't you know the Germans will take care We'll take everything you've got. And then they'll take you into the field and kill you. Don't you know that?
Ruth laughed. At me? Let her. Let her laugh. Her fool head off. She's not my mother. From a deep well between her bosoms, Ruth brought out a white handkerchief with printed flowery borders and dabbed at her eyes. Oh, honey babe, I got nothing in this here world worth taking and no Germans or nobody else is going to kill me till the good Lord is willing. If you believe that, I said, trying to frame the words, then why can't you believe it's also true for Robert? No German can kill him unless God wills it. There was no answer. Nothing except the sound of shoes against black top. But then her arm dropped across my shoulders, bringing me to her in sudden hugging motion. Unless God himself wills it, I heard her say. I followed Ruth into the kitchen where a headless hen, its blood already drying on its body feathers, lay on the rubber drain board. Sit and talk a spell, she said. I glanced again at the grotesque bird. I'll see you when you finish with her, I said back in a way. Out at curbside, even the neat row of houses, mostly bungalows with screened inside porches, seemed peopleless. Not a soul was about. I pictured the ladies of the houses sitting with saucerless cups of coffee, their eyes fixed on the kitchen radio as they lived through Mary Noble's trials as a backstage wife. Helen Trent's over 35 search for romance and poverty reared our gal Sunday's efforts to keep up with the local nobility. I don't want to grow up to spend my days like that, but I didn't want to spend my growing up days like this either, sitting alone on a curb trying to think of something to do. If I had a horse as black as the night, I'd go galloping off in search of her. Go, Evel, go, north toward the Ozarks and never come back. People would ask, what a peculiar name and what does it mean? And I'd lie to them saying it was short for evolution. Evolution, like in Darwin's theory. But someday it would happen. I'd find her and she'd understand right away that Evel has more power spelled in reverse. And that would be the sign between us. She would be my real mother. And now at last I could go home. A car passed. Chrome hubcaps mirrored the sun's rays. I began collecting those gray-white stones that were within lazy reach. Improve your aim. Hit the hubcap. Win a prize. From a distance away, I heard a boy's thin voice calling me. He was short-cutting across our yard, walking as though he wore springs on his feet, up and down, Freddie Dowd. Last time I saw Freddie, a week ago, we were playing marbles on the sidewalk, and my best agate was at stake. Suddenly, he appeared from inside our house, my father. Get yourself in this house this minute. As soon as I closed the front door, he was standing there telling me that he didn't ever want to catch me playing with that dowd boy, not ever again. I didn't understand why. But why can't I? He's very nice. Are you questioning me? My father demanded. Are you contradicting me? I told him that I wasn't. And after a while, he cooled off and went back to the store. The crisis was over. But later, when I looked outside my bedroom window, I saw Freddy was still there waiting for me. So I called down that I couldn't come out anymore, not today, because it was getting close to supper time. And Freddy nodded before slowly loping away. Later, though, I thought about it, wondering if he could have heard. Feelings are fragile, too. Freddie said, "Lo," and sat down next to me. Hey, what you doing? 
Oh, I'm playing Hit the Hubcap. It's a wonderful game I just invented. I'm having a wonderful time. Hey, let me play. Okay, but first have to gather up the ammunition. I held up a smooth gray pebble. Ten for you and ten for me. Freddy wandered barefoot over assorted road gravel, searching out only the small, quality stones he knew I would like. In winter, Freddy wore denim overalls with a checkety shirt of faded red flannel. Now he was dressed in his summer attire, the same worn denims without the shirt. He counted out the stones in a one-for-you-and-one-for-me fashion and then sat down on the curb to play the wonderful game. When no car came along, we played Hit the Oil Can. Hey, hey, there's a car coming, shouted Freddy. I called out last-minute instructions. Dead center of the hubcap is bullseye. Hundred points. Achooey, achooey. From the sound of its motor, it was a tired old thing that used sneezes as a means of power. The car moved slowly into firing range. Then small stones pinged against metal. A single stone revolved round and around the hubcap before firing upward against crack the window. From inside the car, a family of faces turned to stare vacantly like they had all experienced sudden violent slaps across their faces. I ran. Oh, God, now what have I done? I ran through our yard, behind our house, and to the field beyond. I ran until my heart warned that it was ready to explode, and then, deep in the field, I fell down and let the tall grass bury me. After a while, my heart slowed down. Nobody was hurt. It wasn't exactly the crime of the century or anything, just an accident that I caused, but an accident I could make right. Yes, if only I could find them again. I remembered their car, the sickly sound of it, the lackluster blackness of it, and there sitting atop the hood, a silver swan with V-spread wings. I could find that car again. At this very minute, it was probably parked in front of, the, in front of some Main Street store. Ruth would loan me the money to pay those folks for a new window. I knew she would. I pictured the scene between the car's owner and me. I want you to know that it was an accident, and I only hope you can find it in your heart to forgive me. The old farmer would slowly nod his head, taking it all in before saying that I was a fine, honest girl. Maybe we would even shake hands before saying goodbye. I got to my feet. Sticking to the front of my damp polo shirt was a layer of field dust, and down my knee ran a single rail of dry red blood. I couldn't remember hurting my knee. As I walked through the field, I could hear Ruth singing. I looked over Jordan, and what did I see? She didn't just sing from her neck up like other folks I know. Coming for to carry me home. Her songs always seemed to come from a deeper, quieter place than that. I swallowed down the sadness in my throat before going into the kitchen. She sat there at the white metal table, shelling a small mountain of peas. Through squinting eyes, she gave me a questioning look. Honey, babe, you is just too pitiful looking for the cat to drag in. You been fighting with Freddy? Now you tell, Ruth. We didn't fight, I said dully. I never in my whole life had a fight with Freddy, and that's a terrible thing to say besides. You sound exactly like my father. Just because Freddy's poor and doesn't dress up, you think he's not as good as anybody else? Well, he is, and it says so right in the Constitution of the United States of America. All men are created equal. 
Ruth shook her head. I asks you if you had a fight, and you gives me a history lesson. Person can sure learn a lot of things around here. I sat down next to her at the kitchen table, but not one more word did she say. It wasn't supposed to happen like that. Gently, even against my will, Ruth was supposed to squeeze information from me. I realized it wouldn't happen that way, so I just spilled it out. For a long while, Ruth didn't say anything. Then she sighed and asked, Them folks, did you know them? Was they white folks or colored? I don't remember knowing them, but they were white folks from the country. Somewhere on her forehead a line deepened, and I knew it wasn't so good that they were white. Ruth pulled down a brown, simulated alligator bag from the top of the refrigerator. Did those folks know you as Mr. Bergen's girl? No, I don't know. Maybe they did. I said, remembering running towards the rear of her house. Not very smart. She pushed aside a black eyeglass case and a Bible about the size of an open palm to bring out a red zippered changed purse with the printed words, Souvenir of Detroit, Michigan. Inside the changed purse, some coins jangled, but all the paper money was pressed neatly into one small square. She opened the three $1 bills to their full size. Carefully, she refolded them before placing the money in my hand. Now you ask the man how much a window costs before you go giving him all your money. She would do all this for me? There, between her neck and shoulders, was the warm cove where a head could lie and rest, and there I would be home, home safe. Ruth's eyes met mine. Could she know? Could she possibly know? There's nothing to know. I'm not a baby, and she's not my mother. I ran out of the back door, letting the screen make a slamming noise. As I walked toward downtown, I noticed a breeze pushing a few elm leaves around without doing much more than promising to cool things off. Still, my thoughts began to tidy themselves up, and I felt better. After all, wasn't Ruth on my side? Wasn't I even now going out to right a wrong? It was then that I saw a green Chevy roaring down the street towards me, my father. For a moment, I thought I was going to take off behind one of the houses or maybe hide behind the shoulder-high hedges that separated front yards from public walks, but I didn't. Didn't run. Didn't hide. Didn't anything. The car passed me and then came backing up to a jerky stop. The door was opened and hurled shut. His face was frozen, a bluish-whitish color like all the red blood had iced over. With long strides, he came toward me, my back pressed against the hedge. Let me tell you what happened, please. It was just noise to him. A mask cannot really hear. He kept coming toward me. I propelled myself backward, falling into and finally through the tight little branches. From across the protecting hedge, he commanded, Come here this instant. At his temple of vain was pulsating like a neon sign. Please give me a chance to explain. It was an accident. I said I was aiming at the hubcaps. He pointed a single quivering finger at me. If you don't come here this instant, I'll give you a beating you've never, you're never going to forget. Did that mean if I came willingly, he wouldn't hurt me? His face showed no sign of a thaw. Then I felt the warming spirit of Ruth. The Lord gonna protect all his children. Fingers crossed, I stepped through the opening in the hedge to stand soldier straight before my father. Closer, 
only one foot advanced before a hand tore across my face, sending me into total blackness. But then against the blackness came a brilliant explosion of Fourth of July stars, red, yellow, blue, and then green. I never knew those stars were real. I had always thought they were only in comic books. The pain was almost tolerable when a second blow crashed against my cheek, continuing down with deflected force to my shoulder. Using my arm as a shield, I looked up. I saw the hate that gnarled and snarled his face like a dog-gone rabid. He's going to find out someday I can hate, too. Ah! Knees came unbuckled. I gave myself to the sidewalk. Between blows, I knew I could withstand anything he could give out, but once they came, I knew I couldn't. Hands that were in the throes of a fit worked to unfasten his belt buckle. Rolling over, I hugged the hedges. He bent low to send the black leather flying. I, My God, legs on fire! After the first flash of piercing pain subsided, my hate roared up strong enough to keep the tears away. I'll teach you to throw rocks at people, he shouted, whipping the bell backwards through space. No, oh, please, I begged. Can't stand more. Can't. I heard the leather sing as it raced against the air. My eyes clamped closed. And then they came, ugly and unexpected, those violent little cries that seemed to have life of their own, short yelps of injury mingled with anger and defeat. A car door opened and slammed shut. A motor gunned as though for a quick getaway and then roared off.